Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the almost inaudible first lyric of Bad Manners is for Educating Marmalade was When Mischief is Her Stock in Trade. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that no one else ever seemed to, it's comedian and writer Jane Hill. Jane, what year were to work can we find it? Not a lot at the moment, doing some online gigs, working on a, an Edinburgh show for next year. And the best place to find me is probably Twitter, Jane Hill 64 OK, well, I can't really think of... I usually come up with really protracted ways of getting to the first choice. I can't because of what I've picked as your first choice here. So all I'm going to say is the theme music to this... You know, you might have thought Bad Man was doing the theme to Educating Marmalade was weird enough. Wait to hear what the theme to this was. <laughs> Barn by Craftwork and not the section that you normally hear. Jane, what was this a theme from? I think that's Out of Bounds, which was a children's TV series about teenage gymnasts, and I think they solve crimes. Or there was some kind of mystery involved. Yeah, it looks like it was on BBC One in kind of March, April 1977. And nobody really knows very much about it, apart from they had Autobahn as the theme. (laughs) Well, that would be right. I do remember the theme music being very striking. I didn't know it was Kraftwerk at the time. And I suppose I should have done, you know, later associated it back. I remember it had a young boy gymnast, a sort of teenage male gymnast, and he befriended a female gymnast. And the thing I do remember is that she was played by Barbara Slater, who was currently at that time one of Britain's top gymnasts. Not saying much because Britain wasn't very good for gymnastics at the time. (laughs) But she's now really, really big in BBC Sport. So she's a really big top BBC Sport executive. And I don't think she had acted before or since. I cannot remember who played the boy. I think it was on these six parters on probably sort of after Jack and Nori, that kind of time. I would have been about 12 or 13 watching it. And I loved gymnastics. Used to watch gymnastics a lot on the telly at the time, like a lot of girls that age do. I just remember there was a mystery. And they think they use their gymnastics ability to escape from villains at some point. Yeah, as far as I can tell, it's a standard thing about a member of one of their families was framed for a crime they didn't commit by the villains who actually did commit it or something. Looks like the boy was Melvin McClymont, who doesn't seem to have done anything else at all ever. And he's actually on the cover of the tie-in paperback novel, which I do own without ever having seen the series. A tie-in paperback novel? No, I didn't even know there was one. I watched it with my brother... And we kind of enjoyed it, although I think we're aware that perhaps I'm trying to be generous here. The acting wasn't of the best quality, but I suspect they're being hired for their gymnastic ability. It's a bit clunky, but I think gymnastics was really popular. I knew this was the era of, you know, the, the sort of the great Russian and Romanian gymnasts. So I guess they figured that this was a good scenario to tie in some kind of crime drama. And it felt because they were teenagers, it sort of felt a bit older than some of the normal children's stuff. Yeah, those tend to be the ones that people don't remember, because everyone remembers the ones with obviously comedy kids in or the ones where they had the supernatural sci-fi element and the ones that were about you know sort of urban unrest or sport or whatever people don't really remember and there were a lot of sport ones I mean like you say it was an era where gymnastics was really big I mean at the moment I'm looking into the BBC Records and Tapes album releases and the number of gymnastic themed ones they put out in the late 70s is 
almost as many as the Birdsong albums they did. It's quite astonishing, mm. really. But they did quite a few of these. And funnily enough, only the other day, I was talking to previous guests on the show, Ray Earl, about a series we both remember from the early 80s called Breakpoint, which was just about some kids who were tennis hopefuls. And they cast the kids in that on the basis of how they played tennis. Yes. Not for their acting ability. That yeah. was it. I think this is a thing without a bounds. I used to read a lot of comics as well. And there was one called Tammy, which had a series called Bella at the Bar, which was also based on a gymnast who had like a really rough home life and got trained by Russians and, you know, the sort of the ongoing drama of a teenage girl doing gymnastics. And it was it was just huge. I mean, I used to do a little bit myself. I wasn't very good, but I remember doing a lot of gymnastics at school. You know, we used to do sort of balance beam and things like that. I don't even know why it was so big at the time, but it was definitely at that time the sport that teenage girls got into. Less so teenage boys. I think it was quite nice to see a boy you know, playing the lead role in a drama about gymnastics. Yeah, he does look like kind of the typical athletic boy of the late 70s. He looks like he comes straight from the Wigan Casino with on those vests. <laughs> yes. As if he, he should have been dancing to Nosmo King and the Javels instead. Yeah, I can see him in a white vest with slightly sort of shaggy dark hair. That's it, exactly, yes. Yeah, and I think it was his father or, or somebody from his background who was the involved in the, the sort of crime element. And I think that Barbara Slater was a slightly classier girl you know and there was a, a little bit of a, a sort of cross class romance going on as far as i remember and the other thing about these type of serials is they were usually especially when they went down this kind of route quite bleak and my yes. main memory of them is they would often be i know the last thing on the bbc children's program so it was technically you know it was like crystal tips of alistair or something that'd be mm. the five minute animation but really in my head you got a scary programme, then offer the public information film, then the news. <laughs> yes. It wasn't the note you wanted to enjoy the rest of your evening on. No. Quite often when you've been at school mm. and come home in the dark, because these tended to be on in the autumn and winter as well. Yeah. And it wasn't quite kind of the the best image to leave in your mind. No, I mean, I was, I think, as I say, about 13 when this was on. So I was obviously a bit older and I think I probably watched it with my younger brother. And there was a sense that this was a bit more angled at me. And I had to remember, looking back on it, I do remember it being quite sort of grim and quite gritty. There would be a, a, a cliffhanger at the end of each episode. You know, I, I don't know whether you'd get sort of locked up and have to escape out of a window and jump onto something using his gymnastic ability. <laughs> but you're right. I, I'm pretty sure it was on, a, you know, that five o'clock spot, the crackerjack spot, if you like, on, on a Friday, but perhaps on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, it would be something like this. But yes, now you've mentioned the music and mentioned it was Kraftwerk. Absolutely, that fits. I can see in my head the title sequence, which I think was the gymnast doing a kind of cartwheel or a going over a, a box. And I think it was that effect where you see the outline, you know, where you see a moving picture and you see the outline at various points during the movement. And I think that was what the credit sequence was, the title sequence. I know there's a technical term for that, and I can't think what it was. <laughs> it's you know, one of those... me as well, I'll be honest. Yeah. But, but <laughs> if you think about this, is pretty elusive, because the one place where I thought I would find something absolutely concrete about it was The Hill and Beyond, which is basically a book all about all of these serials, listing them all with synopses and cast lists and so on. They found very little to say about Out of Bounds. Basically, more or less, it was on and it's obscure. Mm. There's just yeah. 
nothing about it out there. And yet it seems to have stuck in your mind. Yes. I mean, I, as I say, it's stuck in my mind, I think, because it's a little bit gritty. You know, I was at 12, 13 age and I did gymnastics at school. Not very well, but I could do two cartwheels in a row on a straight line. That was my biggest achievement. And a, a forward roll on a balance beam. You know, that's as good as I got. But I was very into all the kind of posing gymnastics did. I could do the position you do after you've just pulled off the difficult movement. You know, I, I could do the um, I could do that arm stretched out you know, at the end, I could hold that position really well. I just couldn't do any of the really, you know, the detailed stuff up to it. But I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. It absolutely stuck in my head. I thought that's Barbara Slater. I've seen her in gymnastics competitions. More recently, when I discovered she was big in BBC Sport, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder if anyone else has ever remembered that TV series she was in as an actress. And I've never seen it mentioned anywhere. So... (laughs) We could be staring up long buried memories for it. But... She's like, no, don't mention that. that I couldn't act. But we're jumping back a little further in time for your second choice, which is something that I don't think you would be particularly inspired to take up after watching it. I couldn't find a clip of this because we're not sure what it is. So here's a related clip, which I don't think has any bearing about your takeaway from this at all. <laughs> club song now jane i don't think you're going to be quite in such a jaunty sing-along frame of mind when you tell us why we've put that there that's a strange thing saturday morning cinema club so my local cinema which was an odeon it was a beautiful kind of art deco odeon in Southsea, which got knocked down and they didn't ask my permission and i'm still cross about it (laughs) you know and it's just an empty bit of land there now so just don't even get me started but they used to do saturday morning cinema and I don't think I went very often. I think I only went possibly only once or maybe several times with my older sister and my older brother. And we saw there something about pirates and it was either a serial or a pirate film. And there's two things I remember. One is I was absolutely obsessed with the fact that the pirate, the main pirate, had a beard where he had little bows and beads and ribbons and plaits in his beard, which I thought was amazing. But there was also a scene that stuck in my head where... A pirate is buried up to his neck on a beach and basically left to die there. And that realisation as a young child that the tide was going to come in and he wouldn't be able to move. And that's how he was going to meet his end. Now, I'm not absolutely convinced that that scene on the beach was in the same Saturday morning series as the pirate with the beard. But these two memories of Saturday morning cinema have really stuck with me. And I still find that whole concept of being buried up to your neck in sand absolutely terrifying. It'd be great if somebody can identify this as a Saturday morning serial. I've not been able to find it anywhere. But the beard thing, of course, was later used Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, had the whole beard thing going on. But it was definitely in an earlier film or series. I mean, Saturday cinema clubs aren't really something I remember. I'm just slightly too young for them. I'm fascinated by the whole thing about this. There is a lost world 
world of that's why it's so difficult to find out what this was yeah because there are no listings anywhere for anything yeah and all these things were made just for it so what i remember of it and as i say i may have only gone once or i may have gone several times is that there was somebody up on stage there was kind of a club element to it and so people came up on stage if it was their birthday and we all had to sing happy birthday they may even have had the words to happy birthday on the screen you know with the with the dot going along the lyrics and there would be a lot of different things there would be some cartoons now i don't think they played the old serials you know like flash gordon or anything like that i think it was tv i saw those but there would be some serials some cartoons and something a little bit longer that was a drama and it was the longer thing that was a drama which was pirates but it's entirely possible they played a whole film to us. I don't know. The one memory I do have is that my mum had given us some money to get some sweets on the way. And we bought some of those sweet pebbles, which are the most disgusting thing. We lived at the, at the sea, you know, in Southsea, which was um, by the coast. And for some reason, we took it upon ourselves to buy sweet pebbles, which we weren't normally allowed. And we took a bag of these into Saturday morning cinema. And the memories are all sort of stuck together there. Don't ever bury me in sand. You know, I, I just will not. I want to do it even as a joke because that is terrifying. You've just reminded me of sweet pebbles, though. My memory is they were very hard to tell apart from actual pebbles. Absolutely. They look just like actual pebbles. And you could do, have a great joke where you could put some actual pebbles in a paper bag and offer them to your aunt and say, would you like a sweet pebble? But yeah, they were disgusting. I don't know what the point of them was at all. But Saturday morning cinema, I mean, it really did end very suddenly. And mm. it was when people actually attribute it to Tiz wasn't swap shop. But it was before that, basically, just when they started showing programmes on TV on a Saturday morning yeah. with actual kind of structure to them. Because, you know, you look at... I spent most of my time looking at old TV Times and Radio Times listings from the early 60s, and there's not much on on a Saturday morning then. Mm. Suddenly, later in the decade, I don't know quite... Because I don't think there were regulations stopping them. I think they just thought it wasn't the done thing. Yes. And that they were competing with the cinema club. Suddenly, they start putting stuff on. And even the early kind of Saturday morning shows, like things like Zocco and Woosh, which mm. don't bear any relation to things like Tiswas and Swap Shop they are more like a cinema club on TV with like lots of little short things and weird linking bits and sing-along bits mm. and it's when those start happening that this all disappears almost overnight. That was, yeah, it was, it was Saturday morning and it was, you know, I guess a place to put your kids on a Saturday morning. And we didn't go often. It wasn't a regular thing. But it may just be that that particular day my mum had had enough and wanted to get us out of the house. But it felt like a big treat to us. It was just weird. You know, the cinema full of kids and it was quite rowdy. And the poor sod on stage trying to kind of keep, you know, trying to kind of keep the peace. And not knowing what you're going to see was just very odd. So did it leave you with a fear of pirates as well? I I don't think pirates just the fear of being buried up to the neck in the sack. <laughs> you know, we all have our things we're really scared of, um, you know, and that is, is one of mine. But no, pirates are fine. It was just that particular thing that the pirates did. That's what terrified me. What have they done to warrant that? I don't know. I think I'm honestly talking about something that I saw when I was maybe five or six you know, that kind of age, you know, absolutely late 60s. I think it's just what pirates did to each other, isn't it? Maybe there were two pirates and they were battling for supremacy. I may be making it all up, but I'm pretty sure I've seen this scene. OK, well, I'm fairly sure nobody got buried up to the neck and sand in your next choice. I'm hoping not anyway, from what little I know about it. Let's hear the title song from it and then find out what it is. Yes, it is his land, all of it his. He stepped it off and marked it there. Stepped it off and marked it there. 
To be his earthly thoroughfare. To be his earthly thoroughfare. And then he blessed it with his hand. Yes, it's a great land. All of it is. And as it blooms before our eyes, as it blooms before our eyes, just like an Eden paradise, like an Eden paradise, the world will understand. World will understand. This is his land. Okay, the unmistakable voice there of Cliff Richard singing "His Land." No prize for guessing who the his is. Jane, what was the film? It's a film called His Land. It was a film where Cliff Richard and an American evangelist called Cliff Barrows toured the Holy Land, toured Israel. I think it was a film that was made, I mean, obviously a Christian film. You know, Cliff Richard was big in Christianity. We were quite a Christian family. We spent quite a lot of time doing church, church activities in the Anglican church, but at kind of the, what you might call the happy clappy end of the Anglican church. And this film was massive for us. Cliff Richard was massive for us, as you can imagine, because, you know, he was both a pop star, but also a Christian. So he was kind of doubly exciting. And he actually came to our church once, which honestly, as as a child, was one of the most exciting days of my life. We sat in the pew behind him because my dad was one of the church wardens. And at one point, his guitar nearly fell over. and My dad had to prop it up and he turned around and thanked my dad. And, you know, I was seven or eight or something and I couldn't have been more excited I watched his Saturday night show. My earliest ambition was to be one of the dancers on its cliff. But then his land came out and they showed it in church. And that was the thing. We all went to church one weekday evening and they had one of those projectors up. And the film had obviously been hired out to churches to show and it broke. So we all had to go back the following week to watch it again. And I thought it was amazing. Cliff Richard wore a kind of a purple jumper. That's the thing I always remember as he kind of toured Jerusalem, stopping every so often to sing a song about God or about some Bible story. But Cliff Barrows, the other guy involved, was this evangelist with the most amazing speaking voice. And there's a track on the album called Dry Bones, where he's in this valley somewhere in the desert. And he does the bit from, I think it's Ezekiel, all about the dry bones. And it's the most incredibly dramatic thing I've ever heard. Well, I heard at the time. I I exaggerate. I've obviously heard more dramatic stuff since, but it was really thrilling. And me and my two best friends, if we were asked for our favourite film as children, we went His Land by Cliff Richard because it was just so exciting to watch a film in church. Well, I'll come back in a minute to the dry bones thing. Oh, God, do. It's it's amazing. But what it's making me think of is kind of, it's reminding me of Highway with Harry C. Which obviously was the 80s ITV Godslot program. But obviously, they went to the expense here of flying Cliff Richard out to the Holy Land rather than having Harry Seacombe wandering around, you know, a Ford plant somewhere singing, God made the trees to some men working (laughs) a lathe. But these were like, I think they wrote specific songs for it. I mean, I've, I've sound like I really fondly remember it. It was just such an exciting thing to go into church and be played a film with your favourite pop star wandering around this foreign country in the footsteps of Jesus. And it just seemed, you know, it, it's one of those things that you will only remember if you had the, the kind of childhood I did. You know, you, you won't have ever heard of this film if you didn't go to church as a sort of 10 year old. But for me, it was just we had the album as well at home. We actually had the album, the soundtrack album, and we used to play it quite often. So it's really kind of stuck with me. And it was something that united kind of children and parents 
you know, because it was kind of a pop star, but it was religious. So Dry Bones, is it actually the Dem Bones, Dem Bones song, but done dramatically? Well, no, it's, <laughs> it's, I'm trying to remember my Bible, and it's honestly a long time since I read it, because it's all a very long time ago. I think it's the prophet Ezekiel, and he has this vision of a valley full of dry bones, of just like bones lying around, and whether they're kind of jo- then joined together and come up and move, I can't remember. But it just seemed really dramatic, you know, when these deep American evangelical voices. Well, I was hoping it would be the knee bones connected to the thigh bone. Yeah, no, I don't think it's... It would only be, you know, not more than 18 months after that was used in the last episode of The Prisoner. And that would be quite, <laughs> quite a leap I... from, you know, Patrick McGowan running around in Port Merriam <laughs> to Cliff Richard being reverential. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, sadly, I don't think... Whether the song was inspired by it, I don't know. But it's just a... It's one of those kind of prophetic visions done in a... I mean, you know, at the Years later, I realised, of course, this is how Americans do evangelism. You know, at the time, it was all new to me and seemed very exciting. There was a whole load of these films around then, which, again, aren't really sort of chronicled anywhere. These are seldom mentioned, but there were a lot of them, mm. mainly American. But there were some with Cliff that aren't even really mentioned alongside his other films. Because one thing I will say in Cliff Richard's favour is he made some great films in the 60s. Mm. And his land doesn't get mentioned alongside Serious no. Charge and so on. Exactly. I mean, because the other film I went to see around this time was Take Me High, which was the other Cliff Richard film from the 1970s, which I remember very vividly. He played a businessman who's sent to Birmingham to work and obviously feels quite glum. He's being sent from London to Birmingham. But he meets a woman who lives on a canal boat and he invents a new kind of burger called the Brum Burger. And the final scene, I think, is him on the canal boat, you know, launching the Brum Burger. And, you know, the fact that somebody came up with the idea of making a musical a romance starring, you know, one of the biggest stars in pop music at the time that involved inventing a burger in Birmingham. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, the Birmingham tourist office, you know, they'd had Telly Savalas doing the looking around Birmingham. And they thought, let's get Cliff Richard and making a romantic, <laughs> the extraordinary scenes. And of course, that has Deborah Watling, who had not yes. long been in Doctor who at that point yes. in it yes. and the weirdest thing about it was you were of a band called denim from the 90s no no and kind of they were doing 70s revival stuff before it was really a thing but not in a i mean i was described their first album as i love the 70s for people about to slash their wrists because they talk oh, about right. things you yeah. know like like the pub bombings and so on as well as the more sort of tinsely glam rock side of things but they actually had the song called Brumberger about oh. take me high well there you go I remember that Deborah Watling wore a lot of dungarees. It was quite a dungaree focused <laughs> film. And I think in the very opening scene, Cliff has this kind of row with the woman he's he's living with or something. And when my sister and I went home and started replaying the plot to my mother, she was most shocked that Cliff Richard had been living with somebody. And she said, oh, perhaps it was his sister, you know, <laughs> because the thought that he would walk out on one woman and then get involved in a romance with the other woman seemed kind of you know, not the sort of thing he would do. It's you not know, very clear. Yeah, well, I'll say that. Yeah, you know, there was no God in Take Me High. It was just a film about burgers and canals. <laughs> well, I don't think there was a hidden Christian message in it. Well, along those lines, you did also mention a book of Bible stories, but all the stories were told to some children called Beryl and Derek. Yeah, this is honestly the reason, you know, when I think back of my cultural heritage growing up, so many things are focused on church and the Bible and stuff. But this was a book of Bible stories and it was a beautiful old book, I think possibly 
from the 1950s and there would be a page of a story and then a page of a full colour plate. You know, they always call them full colour plates and I never understood why they were called plates. But you know what I mean, those beautiful coloured pictures which would illustrate the Bible story. And the scenario was that Beryl and Derek, and I think they had a younger sister called Pauline, that their mum would read them a Bible story every night. So the Bible story was kind of embedded within a kind of thing that happened in real life. You know, so it would be Beryl and Derek would be playing. They would learn some kind of lesson, you know, from whatever they'd been doing that day. And then mummy or sometimes daddy, very occasionally daddy, would tell them a Bible story that related to the thing they had done. You know, and then obviously at the end, they decide they'd be nicer children next time. You know, it's the sort of classic Bible stories. But one I remember was one called, it was called something like The Little Extra Kindness. And it was a really you know, we used to talk about it in our family. We all, if you say the phrase, the little extra kindness, you know what I mean? I wish I could remember exactly what Bible story it is, but there's somebody has been thrown down in a pit and the king or whoever threw him in the pit comes to rescue him, throws down a rope, but also throws down some padding so that when he puts the rope round him to come out of the pit, it's more comfortable. It was a story called The Little Extra Kindness. I don't know if it's a Bible story. It must be because it's in the Beryl and Derek book. But it was that kind of thing. You know, every story would illustrate a point that we could learn from, you know, as to make us better children. Did you learn much from his land, though? Do you know, I don't know. I actually went to Israel a couple of years ago and there were a couple of moments where I thought, oh, you know, this is that bit that Cliff Richard went to. But no, I don't think I'm really sussed that it was supposed to be a learning experience. You know, I mean, other than geographically, you know, I got a sense of what Jerusalem looked like, but I don't think I particularly learned, you know, any kind of Christian message from it. Okay, well, I'm wondering if you might have learned anything at all from your next choice, which is a series of books where there's nothing I can find to illustrate them. They weren't even done on Jack and Ori, as far as I can tell. So, as usual, here's a record from the 60s, and you'll find out why I put it there in a minute. that was Climb Every Mountain as performed by Judith Durham from The Seekers I once bought a reissue of that album that accidentally omitted that despite it being on the track listing I did not miss it at all Jane <laughs> why have I put Climb Every Mountain here? Well this is a series of books by an author called Shoal Styles. that's Shoal like Shovel but with a W I think maybe a double L and they were I suppose the best way to explain them was they were a slightly older version of kind of famous five books but on mountains it was a series of kind of children or teenage sort of thrillers i guess there were two teenagers called simon and his sister was mag that's i remember her name right with bag and i'd never heard that name before obviously it's a shortening of margaret and they climbed mountains and on their mountain climbing holidays they would come across villains doing nefarious things on mountains and you know solve the crime in some way i don't really remember the plots very well but i do remember that simon was very given to doing mountain related swearing so when everything anything amazing happened he would say great gable which i think is the name of a hill <laughs> or mountain and that really stuck 
with me. I was the sort of youngest of three when, you know, for the first part of my childhood. And I always used to read my older brother and sister's books. So, you know, I was reading things like The Famous Five when I was about six or seven. And we read all the Ina Blyton books, read the Mountain and Adventure series and the Rubber Dub Mystery, which is a, another mini series, and the Five Find Outers. And I think we'd basically run out of Ina Blyton. And my parents gave us these for Christmas. So we each got given one of them. And then they bought the fourth one. There's only four in the series, you know, just randomly later. And they were in the same edition. I think it's Dragon Books as the five find outers. But the exciting thing about them was they were the next stage up. So the books were issued for like children of different reading abilities. And these were for 12 to 15 year olds. I was about eight and I just kind of hid that. I didn't want anyone to pick up the book and spot that because I thought I must have been given it as a mistake and it would get taken <laughs> away from me because I was about eight or nine. But yeah, so mountain climbing, teenagers having adventures, kind of in a Blyton, but in mountains. I know nothing about mountaineering at all. I think there was one, there was one called The Shop in the Mountain, which I think might be the first one, where they are moved to some remote part of Wales to live on a mountain. And there's another one called, I think, something like A Necklace of Glaciers, which I guess was maybe in Austria or Switzerland or something. So wherever they'd go, they'd always go to a mountain and there'd always be a mountain-related crime happening. So yeah, see them as kind of Ina Blyton books, if you like. But I think Charles Stars was a mountaineer and I have a feeling he was like from maybe the 30s or something. I've never sort of come across anyone else who's read these books, but I'm sure somebody else must have done. I imagine he must have written books about mountaineering at some point. Yeah, it looks like he wrote some factual ones as well. Are these books apparently originally date from sort of 96? 61, 62-ish. Oh, okay. uh, there was also The Ladder of Snow was definitely part That's of the series. Right. And The yes. Pass of Mourning looks like that's it might it. be as well, but they look like they've got a bit older in that one. Mm. That's, from, that's from 1966, so maybe he aged them in real time, but they look <laughs> no. a bit older on the cover. Right. But this is reminding me of, now regular listeners of this will be well ahead of me here, the fact that you're saying wherever they went, there had to be a mountain, and the mountain somehow had an adventure that came with it. It's reminding me of the TV series that only I remember, Ski Boy. No, I don't remember that. No, everyone's sick of hearing about it, so I'll just recap very quickly <laughs> boy who taught skiing in the alps sort of early 70s action serial and somehow all the crimes came to the alps for him to solve by skiing oh. it's exactly <laughs> this kind of model how why do people set themselves these limiting formats and then somehow manage to share the <laughs> series out of them because <laughs> at least with some of the inner blighton books like the five find outers they lived in a town there are lots of things happening in that town so the five find outers they're the ones i really remember being in the same format as the dragon books as the Cheryl Stars one, but they had a little red dragon, which I think meant they were for younger children. These ones were, you know, the Cheryl Stars ones. I felt like a proper grown-up reading them. You know, like I was reading Alastair MacLean or something. You know, it was that kind of proper grown-up books about these teenagers. There are all these authors who wrote loads of books for children whose names were probably ubiquitous in their time, but now almost forgotten. I mean, the name that always hovers around my mind is Willard Price. Oh, yes. When yes, did you that a well. book by him in the past you know 20 odd years i mean obviously not new ones but you never see them in well i imagine they're not in libraries they're certainly not in charity shops or anything and yeah that was an inescapable name at one point yes the other books we we really like my brother and i particularly were the alfred hitchcock books jupiter jones and they weren't written by alfred hitchcock but they were sort of sold as they were they're called alfred hitchcock investigates or something and oh there was the three investigators text. yes yeah, yeah we've had that on here before like yeah text by Robert Arthur and I yeah. remember asking my brother who his favourite
author was, he went, well, Robert Arthur, you know, because he had obviously had sus that he wrote them with Jupiter Jones, who was like this super bright, quite punchable kind of child. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved all that stuff. And, you know, basically this is what I read until I went on to Agatha Christie, aged 12, you know, which is, I, I, I think, probably quite a frequent and common route for avid readers. You know, you go from Mina Blyton and then you pick up something slightly more teenage and then you soon realise you just read grown-up books. Yeah, that's it. But then you had the whole thing of trying to get grown-up books out of the library when you mm. still had junior tickets. <laughs> I remember being severely told off, eight about 13, by, not even by one of the librarians, by the security man in our local library. We tried to get out a book about the BBC Radiophonic Workshop because it was from the adult section. I don't know what depraving and corrupting he thought it might do for me. In front of my dad as well, he just really kicked off. I don't know if they made an exception for Agatha Christie because I, I remember getting them from the library. I read my first one when I was 12 on a caravan holiday where the only place you could get books was the local petrol station and they always had a selection of kind of dog-eared Agatha Christie books. And my dad said, well, why don't you buy that? You'll enjoy it. And I said, well, it'd be too scary for me. He's like, no, you'll love it. It's just like, you know, Blyton. And he was right. And after that, you know, I guess when you're 12, maybe you move on to being allowed adult books. But yes, I used to get them out of the library and then I'd swap them with a friend at school and we'd read them under our our desk, obviously, in lessons. Because once you started an Agatha Christie when you were about 12 or 13, you could not put it down at all. The thing was, though, and I think Agatha Christie books will fall into this. There was something about the adult section in libraries that you would spot a cover when you weren't old enough to go in that would put you off going in there for a number of years. (laughs) Usually the cover of a thriller or Maybe a sci-fi novel at a push, or I vividly recall a book about forensics, mm. seeing the cover of that and thinking, I'm not going to the adult section for a while. But that was probably the better deterrent, just to put all those books front and centre on those weird random display things on the table. Yes. You could never work out what was in there and why. And it was often the paperbacks. Now, the talking of covers, and this kind of ties in with my fear of pirates and beaches as well. There was the Agatha Christie book, Evil Under the Sun. A lot of the covers of her books were done by an artist called Tom Adams, who's just beautiful these Fontana books I mean the most amazing artwork I've actually got a poster of one of them that I bought from his website a few years back but Evil Under the Sun showed a kind of one of those kind of wax you know the dolls you stick pins in dressed as the person who gets killed but the limbs are all over the place and there's kind of wool tangled around her neck and there's pins in her and this figure is lying on a beach and I was absolutely terrified and I do remember one summer holiday in the same caravan and this was down in Devon, so Agatha Christie country, where my brother was reading this book. And that's what gave me the idea that Agatha Christie books were terrifying. You know, this dead body lying on a beach. As it turned out, they're not at all terrifying. They're actually quite, you know, quite suitable for the, the kind of puzzle minded, quite good reader aged about 12. And they were great covers, absolutely stunning covers. I, you know, it's a shame when they went into a sort of different publication. But the Fontana Tom Adams covers are beautiful. Well, that's it. There is this kind of lost world of artwork as well, because I was just thinking... I'd never heard of the mountaineering books that we're talking about before, but my first thought was, they are lovely covers. They are, aren't they? They're kind of lost history. It's like I mentioned the Radio Times before. They have beautiful illustrations for programmes in the 60s that were obviously meant to be seen one week and then never seen again. Mm. Somebody did that wonderful drawing of the music box from Camberwick Green for the first time it was shown. So many paperback books fall into that same category. Covers that, well, you know, for various reason stuck in everyone's mind i'm looking currently at the cover for a necklace of glaciers which is one of the shell styles books and it's the most i mean you want to pick this up and read it there is a plane a small plane that's flown into the side of a mountain there's a, a man climbing up a 
kind of bare rock wall, there's a woman, or possibly Mag, with her strange name, rhymes with bag, standing beneath him, giving him rope. And somebody in the distance looks like they're chasing them. And you just think this looks so exciting. In the Charles Stiles books, they were brother and sister. So it was an older brother. And I think he was sort of 16-ish and the younger sister who may have been sort of 13, 14. And I think she was always trying to prove that she was a really good mountaineer, as good as her brother. I do seem to remember that she was very much in the action, that she was a competent mountaineer, 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 and knew what she was doing, which I think was quite nice, you know, as a girl reading these books. That, you know, she seemed to be fully involved, from what I remember, in the adventures and the climbing and the catching the nefarious villains whatever they were doing. Well, you had to take progressive things where you could find them in those days, I yes. think. But... I mean, it may not have been progressive, but at least it <laughs> felt like... Because in the famous five books, all that Anne ever did was make beds out of heather. And I couldn't fully relate to George because I think, you know, she just went a bit far. But Anne, you know, it's like, oh, Anne, stop being so wimpy and making the beds. So just go off and have an adventure. Right, well, we've been talking about limited formats and your next choice is actually set on an oil rig. <laughs> I don't think you can get much more limited than that. Here's the theme music. It doesn't fit with the programme at all. Strike North. Jane, is that as exciting as it sounds? <laughs> well, I mean, Oil Strike North, what an exciting title. I'm sure it must have had an exclamation mark. And it seemed like it was going to be really exciting. I think it was one of those Sunday night dramas. And we were huge fans of the brothers in our family. So, you know, we'd sat and watched multiple series of a drama about a haulage company. So, you know, the idea of a drama about oil rig and the oil business seemed incredibly exciting. But I think it only went on for one series. And I think for memory, it just wasn't very exciting. I have a feeling that rather too much of it was business being done, you know, in Aberdeen, I guess. The North Sea oil was such a story, you know, as I was growing up in the, what, the mid-70s, was it? The North Sea oil kind of thing. And it's all we ever talked about, North Sea oil. You just had to say those words and you were excited. I just think the oil strike North never quite lived up to the excitement. And I think it was a bit of a damp squib. I don't remember an awful lot about it, but I do remember some drilling. And I remember, I think, at the opening, there's a man kind of flying in on a, a small plane. And I think anything that opens with a man in a small plane is exciting. I mean, I love the Towering Inferno, where I think the opening sequence is Paul Newman in a small plane. You know, and it seemed like it was going to be hugely exciting and then just really wasn't. So it's kind of one of those great lost series. I think it was the same people as behind, you know, things like Howard's Way. I have to be careful, not Howard's End, Howard's Way. I think it might have been a, was it a Gerald Glaister? Gerald thing? Glaister, who also did Coldits and the Brothers and Secret Army. So, yeah. you know, he yeah. had a knack for wrestling drama out of, you yeah. can't really say mundane situations, but kind yeah. of very, very fenced in, limited worlds mm. with I mean, very rig, slow moving but... action. And it just didn't work here. No, I was reminded of it because I've been watching recently the series that was on BBC4, the Norwegian drama, which is, I can't remember the English title, but the Norwegian title is like Lickerland. And it's set in the 60s 
in Stavanger and the impact of oil there. And it's really interesting. It's a really good series. And it's kind of explored, you know, the impact on different companies and on different people and the sense of money suddenly pouring in. And I just think this is what Oil Strike North could have been. And it just wasn't. It's kind of similar to, I mean, this was from 1975. There's a series in 1973 called Moonbase 3. Which right. was made by the Doctor Who production team at the time between series of Doctor Who. I'm sure so many kids must have asked to stay up to watch this and then mm. be thoroughly disappointed because it was about the realities, the actual scientific, literal realities of building a base on the moon. Yeah. And, you know, what would happen? What would be the psychological impact? How would they cope? There's even an episode where there's disturbances and they think it might be some kind of extraterrestrial threat but no it's just subsidence <laughs> and it's kind of, it's really making me think of that to be honest they've somehow missed where the drama lies in these situations i mean like as i said i don't remember it very well but i think we kind of expected it would be more like the brothers i mean why the brothers was such a big thing i mean we used to be allowed to stay up late to watch the brothers on a sunday evening you know as a child i was staying up late to watch a drama series about boardroom meetings in a haulage company and yet it seemed the most adult exciting thing on television and I don't know why Oil Strike North didn't kind of hit those things. Another series in the same vein that not that many people seem to remember is Warship. We enjoyed Warship a lot, I guess because we sort of lived in Portsmouth, but there's a lot more there was a lot more scope for a range of different stories, obviously, and I think the Navy was supporting it as well in some way. Oil Strike North just struck me as that one that sort of sat there as the one that never got any further than one series. And I could never really work out why, but I think you're right, it was just boring. That would explain, really, wouldn't it? Well, probably, because I mean, you look at the cast aren't bad. There's people like Nigel Davenport, Glyn Owen, Angela yeah. Douglas, you know, all heavyweight people. Now, I noticed lower down, there's a rare sighting of Richard Herndall. For anyone that doesn't know who he is, when they did the 20th anniversary Doctor Who story, The Five Doctors in 1983, William Hartnell, obviously, was he'd been no longer with us for quite some time by that mm. point. So they got, somebody recommended this guy, Richard Herndall, who said he looks a bit like him. Right. He's a legend in ways because I don't think he completely understood what he was doing <laughs> and Peter Davison famously on one of the DVD extras says with Richard Herndall you've got a complete character which <laughs> is the most damning fake phrase I've ever heard but I'm fascinated to see he was in this I really want to see it now just mm. to see what he did in it and whether he had range beyond that one weird interpretation of something that was almost completely but not quite totally unlike William Hart mm -hmm. you're right these are big names and they are very much Jared Glaster names as well aren't they because obviously Glyn Owen cropped up later in Howard's way and I mean Nigel Davenport what a legend Barbara Shelley of course was always the woman in these things wasn't she she was yes. uh... and the thing is these series are kind of disappeared as well because unless we ever get a kind of Disney Plus style replacement for the iPlayer where it's got the entire archive on it there's no real other than curiosity value in digging out something like Oil Strike North there's no commercial potential for no. it no so... what I would say is it's probably really bad you know if you watch on say yesterday and we were talking about All Creatures Great and Small the other day and you watch it now and any scenes kind of filmed inside you're so aware of it moving from outside to really kind of studio bound you know some of them just feel really really slow don't they I think we're just used to a completely different pace of drama you'd watch a couple wouldn't you as a kind of let's see what it was like and then just think nah nah 
No need to watch that. I watched one of the original Vandervolk the other day on uh, Talking Pictures. You know, just out of interest, I noticed it was on. And that's something that I think we all remember fondly because of the theme music. And it was awful. It was like there seemed to be a lot of indoors scenes, whereas nowadays I think we would cut to where the result of that conversation has already happened. You know, there's quite a lot of scenes of people receiving phone calls and going, yes, yes, oh, I'll be right there. And of course, I think nowadays we just cut to the scene where they're there already and somehow kind of work it in. We just have a whole different vocabulary, I think, for TV drama, don't we? OK, well, never mind the pace of drama. For your last choice, we're talking about the pace of breakfast. Breakfast time, breakfast time. I think I'll sip some breakfast with orange. Okay, I've no idea why I put in a clip there because I've been trying to think all day about what could go. I can't think of anything at all. So Jane, just tell us about breakfast slices. Breakfast slices were kind of bacon, but not bacon. They were a meat product that were long and thin in a kind of the size and shape of a bacon rasher, but a kind of regular shape. They were a sort of dark pink colour, like a tongue, and they were incredibly seasoned and salty. And they were sold as breakfast slices. And I think Sainsbury's made their own version. I don't know if there are other versions. And I was thinking a lot about why we ate breakfast slices, but I can only imagine that they were cheap, you know, cheaper than actual bacon. I think they were kind of a sort of reconstituted meat type thing. So it would have been bacon and some other meat put together and you know they kind of fried or grilled like rashers but they're a lot more regular so in some senses they were a lot more pleasing you didn't get the bits of meat and then fat you know it was all in one but yes I think it was something that we would have on holiday you know special treat washed down with (laughs) some rise and shine which is powdered fruit juice (laughs) again the previous choice on here (laughs) yeah I mean real fruit juice was what you had as a starter in a restaurant that was the only time real fruit juice was ever drunk. You'd have a, a little tumbler of orange juice. I understand, because obviously I'd never been to a restaurant in that time. But breakfast slices, they were in that same vein as Rise and Shine, a kind of ersatz version of an actual food. They were spicy. They're very, very tasty, very salty. And they were quite easy to eat because, as I say, you didn't have any of the nonsense of it actually looking like a part of an animal or fat or anything. And I've never found anyone else who remembers breakfast slices. You know, they talk about like things like sort of Scottish square breakfast sausages and things like that. But this is a very particular thin thing designed to look rasher shaped and sized. Yeah, the only official things I could find out with it, people keep trying to rebrand it every couple of years. And right. it never takes off. And there's a lot of forums with people saying, do you remember these things called breakfast slices? And people say, yeah, I had them too, could never quite work out what the meat was. Which is something yes, that, mystery it's meat. It's a kind of phrase, yeah, <laughs> mystery meat, exactly. It, it is disturbing me a bit. I think they were a bit like spam, but darker red. You know, it was that kind of taste, you know, it was slightly spicy and I think just designed to be bacon flavour. This was the age of kind of food technology. You know, the, the sort of 70s was the age where, you know, we wanted things that were kind of artificial you know in some ways you know it's like well why bother with rashers when they've got like irregular bits of meat and fat and you're never quite sure how much fat it's going to have and of course in those days you had to cut the rind off as well why not just have a breakfast slice which combines it all in one thing and also they fit in a frying pan more easily because you know sometimes rashers are big at one end and small at another and you have to kind of you know arrange them on the grill whereas these all fitted you could give the same size one to every member of the family and there was no kind of you know nobody felt left out so 
So I'm sure they were quite appealing for that as well. But I suspect mostly we had them because they were cheap. Well, I mean, that would be a counterpart to the way we never really had anything cooked at breakfast. We just had large bowls of very yes. cheap cereal sold <laughs> out. And then we would fight yeah. each other over the Superman the movie yeah. cutouts on the back of Weetabix. <laughs> but I think processed stuff, which is what... I remember coveting that as a very small child, thinking anything processed must be good. Anything yes. instant, anything like that. I wonder if it came from the fervour about the moon landings, where there was all that stuff about, you know, the packaged processed food that they'd had oh, on the journey. And it must stem from that. It can't have just been because they were new. There must have been a cultural kind of weight of force behind it. And I wonder if it was that. It might have been. Yeah, I mean, I was stressed we didn't have them every breakfast. Breakfast was normally ready <laughs> break and a spoonful of viral, which I'm sure somebody must have mentioned before. Somebody must have done viral on this no what, what oh. is viral is it about to make this episode go viral okay. I hope viral, so <laughs> viral might make this episode I, I really don't know what it was it was a jar <laughs> do you know what I bet it was one of those waste products you know like Marmite is effectively a waste product you know it's an off product from brewing but viral was it came in a jar I think it had something to do with brewing and it was like brown and sticky and you were given a spoonful sort of as you left to go to school and it was going to be good for you and it was like like a multi sort of taste, I think. And as I'm saying this, I'm actually looking it up, and apparently it was absolutely a byproduct of the brewing industry. It had malt, sugar, vitamins, and it was marketed, you know, as like being good for you. This is in the kind of days before we took vitamin tablets. So we'd have ready break for our breakfast, and then we had to catch the bus to school. I mean, we were like eight and five, and we all just went off on the bus to school alone. But as we left, Mum would stand there with a jar of viral and give us a spoonful of viral to eat before we left the house. And it was supposed to keep us warm and keep us strong and give us energy. Oh, it's a delightful taste. I mean, it's really kind of sticky and it wasn't sweet. It wasn't savoury either. It was very, very peculiar taste. But yeah, really, really good stuff. And I don't know if, if you can get viral still. But yeah, I mean, the name itself says it, doesn't it? Viral. Do you think it was really good for you, though? Because one thing I am painfully aware of is that Lucas A dropped the kind of health benefit aura to it in the 80s and they tried to pretend it was a good sports drink and then they just stopped completely and just said ah it's LucasAid do what you want with it do you think this was similar do you think somebody just said oh this has got health benefits has it oh oh, yeah oh yeah 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 yeah. give it to everyone all the time and yeah I mean we had ready break because of course it gave you that glow you know that sort of nuclear glow I mean the adverts that's why we had and also it fills you up and it's it was relatively cheap I guess you know you can have a bowl of ready break and you're not going to eat again for you know till lunchtime and viral i guess i mean it was marketed as giving you strength i also think and i wonder if there's something to do with this because you know my parents were of the age where they lived through rationing so i do think that impacted a lot on the choices of food they gave us you know so we had a lot of sweets as children but there was also a lot of building up you know that sense of being built up you know and aren't you lucky to have this because we didn't because we had rationing so i i do wonder i'm sure there's something about the mentality of parents who live through rationing and how they feed their children so we would have loads of bread and butter we had bread and dripping you know as as like plentiful eat as much bread and dripping as you like breakfast slices ready break boiled sweets you know every friday my dad would come home with boiled sweets and it was like a, a treat because it wasn't something that they could have had i have terrible teeth now i have fillings in every single tooth 
that it's possible to have fillings in. I don't know if viral was good for you, but it was marketed as being good for you. And I think my parents were very keen that we would be healthy and strong, you know, because they had lived through rationing. Do you miss breakfast slices, though? I wouldn't say I miss them. I was <laughs> doing some bacon the other day and it all curled up kind of in an irregular fashion. And you just thought, oh, it'd be quite nice to have something that would just lie flat. <laughs> I bet if I had it now, I, I would find it too salty. What I particularly loved as a child and I thought was an absolute treat was Spam fritters. And honestly, I think if I look back, that was probably my favourite ever food. So I did always have a taste for that kind of really salty, you know, meat product, <laughs> mystery meat products. But I think if I had a breakfast slice now, I would just be, oh, my God, the amount of salt in this. And I, I would just reject it out of hand, probably. Well, we won't even get started on what you make of rice and shy now. <laughs> Jane, it's been brilliant. Thank you. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure going down memory lane and thinking of all sorts of things I hadn't thought about in years. Top of the Box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives, Heaven of the Eighth, to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.